Bienvenidos, esto es Diario de Abordo, una travesía a Waldorf. Mi nombre es Juan Pablo Varías. Y yo soy José Tobar. Somos dos profesores de secundaria intentando llevar una bitácora de las distintas peripecias que se presentan en el viaje por la educación Waldorf. En este nuevo episodio eh, vamos a estar charlando un poquito con Karen Gerlach. Karen es una maestra Waldorf. En, en este momento ya una maestra retirada Waldorf que vino a las capacitaciones de invierno al Colegio Waldorf Guatemala eh, ella es una maestra con 25 años de experiencia nacida en Inglaterra, dio clases en Alemania eh, y terminó su carrera como maestra Waldorf en, en Estados Unidos luego de eso pasó un poco al trabajo administrativo eh, y se especializó en la parte biográfica eh, van a escuchar en la en la entrevista no solo acerca de su experiencia, sino además también de en qué consiste esta disciplina o esta, este arte de la biografía y el reflexionar acerca de nuestra vida. Entonces, dentro del contexto nuevamente de las capacitaciones, tenemos el gusto de haber podido platicar con una formadora más, que es Karen Gerlach. Espero que disfruten este nuevo episodio. So, hi Karen, thank you very much um, for agreeing to have the interview. Uh, here we are at Colegio Waldorf Guatemala. And the question that we always ask at the beginning, it's um, how did you encounter uh, Waldorf education? Well, that's a very good question. And I have um, an interesting answer. My grandmother um, was a student of Rudolf Steiner's anthroposophy. And she, when my father was in eighth grade or something like that, he was not happy in his regular school. So she asked if he could be admitted to the Waldorf School in Gloucester in England. This was all in England. And um, he was taken in actually for free. She was, they didn't have much money at all. But they, because she was very serious about her interest in the education, <clears throat> They um, agreed to take him, and his sister, actually. And he uh, was so uh, very, very happy with having found a school where he felt he was really seen and heard and understood that when he had his children, I was the first, and then there were two others, there were three of us, he was very insistent that we go to Waldorf School. So I went to Waldorf School all my life, from kindergarten through class 12 in Germany and in England, because after I was four years old, we moved to Germany. And of course, in Germany, there are many more Waldorf schools than in England. So most of the towns we lived in, we moved around. There were Waldorf schools that I could attend. And it was very unusual at the time, because it was right after the Second World War. And uh, all the English people who lived uh, in Germany at that time as part of the occupation, which is why my father was there, they didn't really have any contact with German people. They lived in enclaves and they sent their children to an English school. Um, but there was only one year when we were in a town where there was no Waldorf school. So I went to an English school. And then uh, with the exception of that year, I always went to Waldorf. When I was 12, I went, we went back to England and um, I just continued Waldorf education in Southern England in the oldest Waldorf school there. It was actually the same school my father went to, but it had moved after the war. It moved from where it was before to a place called, a 
Sussex, which is in southern England. And I went there until class 12. And then um, I didn't have any connection to Waldorf for about seven years. I traveled a lot. I went to, I wanted to be part of the world outside of Waldorf, right. uh, as is very typical of teenagers. You know, they want to do their own thing. And, um, but then when I came to America, some of the first people I met were people very interested in Waldorf. They were not Waldorf graduates. They were young people who got interested in anthroposophy and in Waldorf education. And um, after a few years, when I had, I'd had my first daughter and I was married, um, some friends and we decided to go to England and to study at Emerson College, which was a very popular place for people to go and study about Waldorf education. And so I spent a year there as to train to be a teacher. And then I taught in various Waldorf schools in America, because then I was living in America. I had gone to America right after I, yeah, well, when I first heard about it and met these younger people, then it became interesting to me because it wasn't my teachers and it wasn't my parents. Right. And then I began to study anthroposophy, which, um, you know, opened a new window on what was behind the school I had gone to all my life. Do you think, um, you said you have, you have a daughter, right? I have a daughter and a son. Right. And the daughter is the oldest. The daughter is what? Your daughter is the oldest. Your oldest. She's the kid. first. Yes, I have. First do do you daughter. think that maybe um, having your daughter uh, was kind of a motivation to go on to start education uh, about Waldorf education? We had met, mm. and we had both had children. The wife of this couple had a son almost the same day that I had my daughter. And we even shared a house, you know, because we were young mothers with small children and that way we had some company and, and then we all decided together because they were also very uh, interested in anthroposophy, not so much education, but more in the social sciences. Right. And the husband was, went to study in Holland at something called the NPI, which is more to do with working with organizations and groups in a social way. And uh, the wife and I went to Emerson College with our children. Mm. And then I, my, my then husband and I returned to America. And once my children, and then I had a second child, my son, and when he was old enough to go a little bit to daycare, then I taught a little bit part-time and I taught German because I was, I'm bilingual in German. And they're always looking around for German teachers. And I had a lot of the right background because when you teach in, in a Waldorf school, you begin in first grade. And the material you use is really all the games and songs and things that children learn in that culture. Mm -hmm. You don't teach them, you know, American things translated into German. Right. You do the original stories, the original songs. And I grew up with those, so it was very natural for me. And um, I always loved languages, and I learned French in Germany, and, and then later I learned Spanish, but that was after my, I graduated. And um, yes, yeah, so then I taught uh, full-time for uh, maybe 25 years. I moved more into administration at the end. and. Um, 
When I retired, then I became interested in biography work, which is what I do now, and what's, which is what I'm doing this time, this um, month, with the kindergarten teachers. Mm. And with the whole faculty, once a day, we do some exercises together, and it's called biography and social art. And it's sort of a new art, a new social art, to make the encounter between people, uh, mostly one-on-one -on -one or in small groups of three or four, um, to cultivate an interest in other people so that we don't just make assumptions about people because we live in a rather antisocial time when people are very segregated by philosophies and religions and you know, it's kind of a divided time and people are very prone to just look at themselves and not have so much interest in other people. So Rudolf Steiner, who was the founder of Waldorf Education, he really encouraged that we develop some kind of arts that really consciously approach this question of who am I and who are you? And that we really have um, a way to meet that is meaningful. And so people, not myself, but people before me developed some techniques and exercises and um, I then learnt that from some of those people and began, when I wasn't teaching full-time, to give more workshops. And now I, in, in America, I'm part of a group of seven facilitators who bring um, three workshops a year to seven different Waldorf schools in the United States and one in Mexico, actually, because that's still North America. And um, because we feel it's really helpful for faculties to meet each other in a non-work-related way, but to meet as human beings who are living their lives outside of work also, and before they came to work and through their childhood. And we all have stories to tell. And if we share stories, then we have more compassion for each other when we get on each other's nerves or when things are not working so well, then yeah. we say, but you know, they have a story, there's a reason, rather than saying, oh, I'm offended, or I'm angry, or I'm impatient, to um, feel supportive of your colleague, because you've actually spent some time learning some things about them, and maybe even some difficult things they've had in their life. And it also makes you feel less that you're the only one that you know, sometimes has problems. Because when we're at work, we all put on our best face and, you know, right. like everything's fine. And uh, so to go a little bit behind that and become a little bit more vulnerable to each other without having to be intrusive, you know. Uh, I really love doing that. And I also do biography work in non-Waldorf settings. I go to the local library uh, just for people to meet each other, to create a... Uh, a situation where people can meet. Anyone can be in a biography workshop. You don't have to be a Waldorf teacher. But when I work with Waldorf people, then I, I relate it to the philosophy behind the education. Um, and that's very nice because it's an easy segue. If I work with what I call the general public, then we work more from 
you know, the sort of universal things that everyone can agree upon, that when you're teenagers, you're kind of different from when you're in your 30s, and you're different again when you're in your 70s. So there are these phases of development that we all go through that are universal. Um, but then we each have our individual life within those phases. And those can be very interesting. All lives are very interesting. And people do amazing, make amazing transformations as they journey through life. Yeah, and maybe it's not only that you're not the only one with problems, but also several times you have the same problems as exactly. other people. It's not that this is a unique thing. Like you can have that similarities and that um, universality that you were you were saying. Um, I asked you the previous question about if, if it was because of your daughter, because it's a common story that a lot uh, of people uh, come through their child. Yes, yes. Um, but. Going back a little bit, uh, you mentioned that you were a um, teacher for German as a second language. Mm -hmm. uh, can you tell us a little bit, like you already mentioned, for example, that you use games and everything that are from Germany, um, but can you tell us a little bit how it's different to learn a second language in the Waldorf uh, education than in a regular um, mainstream school? Yes, well, I think it's, um, it's sort of a combination of uh, some approaches are that you just, you just talk all the time and you don't pay too much attention to grammatical correctness, but the communication is the, is the important thing. So you um, move objects around and you attach vocabulary to them and you sort of throw in a bit of grammar But, you know, whether it's correct or not doesn't matter too much. What the, the Waldorf approach is to, to very much take a living approach to the language. So the little children, because they imitate so quickly, mm -hmm. when I was teaching first and second grade, they could almost say after me immediately what I'd said. You know, they can imitate the accent and everything very, very well. And I would tell stories, and then they would retell them with me, you know, because they just they, they memorize things quickly and they can imitate so well. Then, when you get to around third grade, that imitation wanes developmentally. You can't imitate in the same way, and then you start to bring in more structure, but you still do it as everything in the world of uh, lower grades is done through imagination and through artistry and through color and movement and so on. So even if you're talking about the different genders, say in German you have a, a masculine and feminine neuter. So you might tell a story of um, a kingdom and in the kingdom there's a king and a queen and a, and a, a baby prince or princess. And um, so all the things that belong to the little baby um, start with The, new, the neuter form, das, and all the things belonging to the king uh, begin with deer, and those for the queen are, are d. And that way, sort of gives an image around that some are actually masculine feminine. You don't say masculine feminine, because that's a concept that we use as adults, but to fourth graders, you say those are the queens, 
words and those are the king's words. But all the time you're using them. So when they you play a game, uh, you know, you say, was ist das? And then they say, das ist ein da 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 da. So they're always answering and using the vocabulary and we play, you know, games where you hide things and what am I hiding? And get them to reply in full sentences so that they're really using the language and hearing it all the time. And they understand very quickly if you make your whole environment in the foreign language. If you come in and translate, then you're always kind of, I remember somebody giving me the image of that you, um, you're not really getting in the water, like getting into the river. Mm-hmm. You're just on the bank and you dip your toe in once in a while and do right. a little German, but you're never really in the stream of it. And once you know that if you've been to another country, um, you know, if you know a little bit of an, a language and then you go there and everybody's speaking that language all around you, then you're in the river and then you progress much more quickly because that, those are the sounds you're hearing. So it's the same in the classroom. And as the children get older, then you become more, more rigorous in your grammar. And then we get very, you know, pretty firm about this is correct and this is not correct. So we do care about a correct language. And, and how course, do you introduce the grammar? Because I think that's like one of the fears of the parents, like, oh yeah, my kid is talking and everything, but he doesn't know how no, to need. read and write. And uh, on the and other mainstream program, they're already writing and reading and everything. But probably and not like, speaking very much. That's the thing. Yeah. Very often the more traditional way is that you know from the book. And yeah. uh, like my husband, he's won prizes for his Spanish, but when he comes to Mexico or to Guatemala, <laughs> he can't understand what people are saying to him, unless they speak very, very, very slowly, and then he's very shy to say anything. So, um, yeah, you, you, I mean, it, it's all age dependent, like the whole yeah. curriculum. You can start explaining things much more factually about gender and tenses and complex tenses and simple tenses and um, you know that you invert the sentence when you start with a, uh, a, 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 a I think it's with an adverb you start then you reverse the subject and the verb things like that that are rules you learn these rules as you go along but it's always done in a somewhat uh, enlivened way and through a lot of usage So, for instance, if you're learning the past tense, you have someone walk across the, across the, row, uh, the classroom and say, go and, you know, go open the window and pick up the plant. And then you ask someone in the class, what did he do? He went to the window and he picked up the, cl- the plant. So you're, it's a real way of using a past tense because the action is finished as opposed to And also, for instance, you have the polite form of you, you have do and you have z, and do is an easier form in a way, and you call the children do, but if you insist from the beginning that, that I am z, the teacher, because whenever they address you, you correct them to say z without explaining it, but they just, over time, they know, oh yeah, she's z, and I'm do, and my friend is do. You don't have to explain it a lot. But eventually you do, of course, and you have a grammar book and, you know, it gets more like traditional language learning. 
but you have a real foundation in, like my French that I learned from first grade, that's the French I use now because I've never really lived in France. But if I go to France, I can have a conversation based on a vocabulary. Sometimes when I'm speaking Spanish, a French word will come <laughs> because uh, it's so far back in my, in my childhood, you know, it really stays with you. And there's one thing that you mentioned, and that we have interviewed people, um, history teachers and math teachers and science teachers and everything, and they also talk about living concept, not... Um, so, I think two things are very repeated when we're um, interviewing Waldorf teachers. It's living concept and developmentally appropriate. So, but. Can you explain us a little bit more what's a living concept uh, and what's not? In foreign language. Well, one living concept would be the beginning when I was talking about gender with the king mm -hmm. and queen. So you have a story that is reflecting that reality that there is, a, there is a world that has different, which in English we don't have. In English, we don't have the two different genders even. We have the pronouns, but every, um, everything is the. It's very straightforward. In Spanish, you have el and la and lo, no. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, you'd, it's, I think the children, the more they experience it because they're, they're learning stories, they're doing little plays, eventually they're reading, they're reading stories, they're writing stories. So they're, they're absorbing um, all these what become grammar concepts in a more living way. It's something that is just the way you learn your own language as a child, you're not give, being given grammar concepts until a certain age when you need to formalize it because you need to understand, you know, that there are tenses. You can't just always swim in just your experience but you bring things to consciousness as the child becomes more conscious. That's a natural progression that you'd want to know more. But then at the same time, you still, I think in the foreign languages maybe, because you associate it very much with the culture and you immerse them in the literature and the real poetry from that country, uh, you recite poetry together in another language. So it's always kept, <coughs> with the, the fact that language is, is, a, is a living thing, uh, as opposed to Latin, which I was never very good at, because I thought Latin was a bit like math, which I was never very good at either. Because <laughs> you just have to, you know, it's all about translation, and it's right. all there on the, on the paper, and it's not a living thing that you're... So I think in language, it's an easy one to sort of explain in that way. But I think in other ways, when they talk about living concepts, it's that you don't fix things into a definition. You know, what is a rainbow? Well, a rainbow is refraction of water in a certain way, which kind of deadens it into a concept rather than saying, it's a bridge, a beautiful bridge from earth to heaven. And, you know, these stories, a pot of gold is at the end. You know, just making it more uh, alive for a child whose imagination is very rich which doesn't mean to say, and it's still, you can still as an adult really appreciate the beauty of a rainbow. You don't have to keep thinking of 
why, why is it cause, is it ice crystals and how are they refracting and all that sort of thing. That kind of even for me makes it a lot less wonderful than just enjoying the beauty of it. So, but at the same time, you know, uh, I think one of the misunderstandings of Waldorf education from the outside is because there's so much artistry in it that somehow there isn't any hard science and there aren't right. any hard facts. And the children don't really know any more than basket weaving and painting, you know. So one really has to make sure, especially if you start a new school in a new area, that you make very clear that this is also intellectually rigorous yeah. and the students can go to university just like other people. And usually what we find with the, with the Waldorf students, in, at least in the United States and Europe, is that they go to university very, you know, they're very capable to enter those that are academically able to in, in Europe. It's more selective than in the United States. So you have to be of a certain level of exam. But, um, yeah, what's I going to say? <laughs> <laughs> but let's talk a little bit about um, biography also, because you yes. mentioned that. Yep. And um, first of all, I think maybe you can explain us a little bit what's biography. I know that m many people know what a biography is, because probably they already have read some biographies or something like that, but how, what's biography uh, from, from the anthroposophic uh, point, of view. point of view? And because I think it's not just that you can share this universality, but it has also something therapeutical uh, about it, right? I wouldn't say necessarily therapeutic, but it can, it can bring you more insight <clears throat> into your life. And I think certainly what lies behind it is that our lives are not random. They're not a series of accidents that happen, but there is an intention that we come into a life with. And, uh, but we're sort of asleep to it. We don't remember what our intentions were, but we meet people and we meet situations that are often wake-up calls, you know, they make us realize when we then have enough time to look back on our lives that there's a certain theme, something that keeps recurring, that is like a, a golden thread that is my life, that informs me about what really I'm here to do. And certainly I'm here to, you know, we, we work with the idea of karma a lot and that um, You know, if you meet with certain people, you feel you've met them before. Maybe you have met them before in a prior life, that sort of thing. So it, it has, you know, it can have very broad dimensions if you're talking among anthroposophists. But if you're talking with people um, from the general public, then, um, you know, maybe you get to a point and you say, well, what do you think the meaning of life is? Do you think it has any meaning? And some people will say, no, I think it's pretty random, but, you know, I've had a good life or whatever. And other people will say, I, think, I, I don't think it's random at all. I think people I've met, situations I've had to deal with, have helped me to grow and to become wiser and to maybe become more loving and develop more capacities 
because I recognize that we can develop more than if we just let everything happen to us and not really take any responsibility for our life. So, and do you think that you should do this biography work like, um, like in several moments of your life, or is it looking at your own biography? You mean? Yeah, yeah. Your own biography, or it's better just to, uh, when you're old, you can go back, or like, how how do you do this during your life? Yes, like, I think it's because you have an inner question frankly. Sometimes, like the people I've been working with here, some of them are very interested and they want to do more, they want to read more, they want to make a chart of their life and they want to pursue it. There are others who are not so interested in it now, maybe later in their life will be. I mean, these people are all fairly young, they're all in, you know, in their, the most in their late 30s, haven't even touched 40. <clears throat> so, More typically, I think those questions arise around the end of 30s, early 40s, if you're not in a workshop that has been arranged for you, which is the situation with them. Um, and then it, it just becomes something, uh, yeah, if, if you just have existential questions, I think. So to say to someone, you really should study your biography, you know, because you're this age or that age, if they have no interest, I think people have to be left very free, but certainly um, if they come and, and want to do more, they want to know more. There are also people who do biographical counseling one-on-one. -on -one. Mm -hmm. A lot of people in Europe who have studied uh, biography work, they're either already a therapist of some kind, and then they add biography as another string to the way they approach a person's life. So rather than just talking about what your parents did to you, you kind of look at the general course of your life and what are those recurring themes? What are the things that crop up a lot? Because usually people come because they have a question or they have an issue. And maybe you find that their big question is because they're right at a time when they're transitioning from one phase to another. Or there's a certain planetary configuration or a what we call a moon node, which is when the, the, the earth and the sun and the moon are aligned in the same way as when we're born. And those rhythms recur. So there are a lot of rhythms that affect our lives. And um, sometimes people wake up, usually people come to these questions because there's something painful, something difficult. Mm -hmm. And then that wakes, you know, pain wakes us up. And so um, that brings the question. Yeah, just like the poem you, you were um, I was reading, reading today, yeah. Today, yeah. Yes. Um, el dolor, el yeah. dolor nos despierta or something like that. Yes. Madura, yeah, madura. Yeah, so um, do you think when you do this biography work, like some answers come, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and do that help you like for, to plan the next thing in your life or how to, um, I don't know, like face a problem or something like that. Um, well, if you're asking me personally? Or yeah, or ha what, what have you seen with, uh, 
with all the people that he have done biography work, what, what's the common thing like after doing mm -hmm. uh, the biography work? Like, you have well, more questions, or they have answers, or they have both, or I think they certainly have questions because life goes on and things happen. Mm -hmm. That's always a given, right? It's never ended, and even when you die. You know, really, until a person dies, you don't really have an overview of what that life was all about. Um, but I think overall, it gives you the possibility to be more accepting of what comes your way and to understand that everybody has pain and difficulties that come along with good times. And rather than saying, oh, why me? And, um, you know, thinking you're the only one, you discover in a biography workshop that everybody goes through quite a lot of difficult things, often many more than you've ever gone through, and yet they survive, they come through it, and they're stronger, and they're wiser. And, um, and so there's more acceptance. You know, if a thing happens, your immediate response is that you don't like it, <laughs> but then you take a second breath And you say, but this is part of me. This is part of something also that is part of my life and I can accept it and move on. Mm -hmm. So thank you very much, okay. uh, Karen, for accepting this invitation, not just for the interview, but also for accepting to, coming, uh, to come to Guatemala and be part of this teacher training. So thank you very much, Karen, and thank you for your time. You're very welcome. It was a great pleasure. <laughs>